Good morning. Bring you greetings from New Covenant Bible Church in St. Charles, Illinois, where I am a elder, a non-vocational elder there. Um, I'm grateful to Ryan for the invitation and for his friendship. The great uh, theologian, pastor theologian Jonathan Edwards once said that one of the kindest gifts that God can give to his people is a faithful minister of the gospel. And I trust that you know, but just encourage you to recognize what a wonderful thing it is to have not only Ryan as a pastor, but the entire pastoral staff and and the elders here who love God's word, love the gospel, and love you very much. So I've I've heard of this church for years and years through my friendship with Ryan, and it is real privilege and joy now to be with you in person, fellowshipping with you and, and singing with you. Ryan mentioned that my day job is working at Crossway Books, and we have an arrangement where every book that I mention, I get a little extra money. So that's not true. But I'll still mention a book anyway. Uh, We're publishing in June a book entitled Theologians You Should Know, an introduction from the Apostolic Fathers, so early church, to the 21st century. So this book by a man named Mike Reeves covers folks like Athanasius and Augustine and reformers like Calvin and Luther, (coughs) uh, including also John Owen, whom your pastor wrote his dissertation about. But there's one theologian whose presence in the book justifies that last part of the subtitle, the 21st century. Of all the theologians covered there, he's the only one who is still living. And one of the ironies about this great theologian is that he has written almost no technical or academic books. Almost all of his writing has been for the church, for people like you and for me, which reflects his heart. And yet he is widely regarded as one of the great theologians of our day. His close friends call him Jim. His given Christian name is James. And when he first started writing books in his 20s, he decided to go by his initials in the first part, James N.L. or J.I. Packer. This man already has two biographies written about him, although again, he's still living at the age of 89. And there have been three books written about his theology and influence. So he's the sort of theologian that when he says things, people listen And when he identifies what he thinks are the most important things, I in particular sit up and take notice. So years ago when I first read his book, his most famous book, Knowing God, there's a chapter in there that when he said this, it it caught my attention. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of How do you think he finished that sentence? If somebody asked you, how would you finish that sentence? Find out how much a person makes of God, the living God, or maybe more specifically the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Find out how much a Christian makes of the Bible, God's written revelation. Find out how much he makes of grace, 
Find out how much he makes of justification by grace alone, through faith alone. Find out how much he makes of the spirit and his power and his presence. How much he makes of being created in the image of God. I think all of those would be very good answers and perhaps correct answers, but they weren't the answer that Dr. Packer gave. Here's what he wrote. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. He went on, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity, he wrote, cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Let me read that last sentence again. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. And you might think, well, adoption is a great gift, but is it really better than justification by grace alone, through faith alone, whereby we are justified, whereby we are unrighteous sinners declared righteous by a holy God? Isn't that the greatest gift in all the world? Packer says that Justification is the basic blessing on which adoption is founded, but adoption is the crowning blessing to which justification clears the way. As a friend of mine put it, justification gets you out of the courtroom, innocent and righteous. It's adoption that invites you into the living room of God. But I can't, stand up here this afternoon, this morning, and just quote J.I. Packer to you. We need to test all things, measure all things according to God's holy word. So I want us to turn to Romans chapter eight and to put this into some context and to see what Paul, by the Holy Spirit, representing the will of God, teaches about our adoption in Christ. And we'll explore something I think is perplexing with regard to adoption and the future. Before we go any further, let me pray in the spirit of the song that we just sang that the Lord would be with us and help us process his word. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart standing behind this pulpit would be honoring and pleasing to you. I do thank you, Lord, that you have called us to this place, you have brought us into this room, and we thank you that your word will not return void, but it will accomplish whatever you send it to do, even through an imperfect medium and messenger. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things from your word. We pray that you would unite our fragmented hearts to fear your name. We pray that you would incline our hearts, Lord, to your testimonies. Please bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you haven't been in the book of Romans lately, let me give you a really quick orientation. This is Paul's letter to the church of Rome, sort of a missionary support Letter. He's writing from Corinth. 
He's on his third missionary trip. He doesn't know it, but he doesn't actually have that many more years to live. It's around A.D. 57. He's writing to this church that he, whom he's never met, but he p- hopes to meet. And he wants to unfold for them the, the saving righteousness of God in the gospel. In the first chapter or two, Paul talks about the righteous wrath of God against sin and sinners. And then in, in goes into chapter three, and then starting in verse 21 of chapter three, he begins to unfold the, the power of the gospel in the cross where the righteousness of God is revealed in the saving work of Jesus Christ. So that goes from chapter three, 21 into chapter four. And then chapter five through eight is kind of its own unit, its own section. And the big picture, the big point Paul wants to make here is that in light of the cross, in light of what Jesus has done, in light of his righteous revelation, we as believers, those who know Christ, those who've been justified by faith, can have hope, can have assurance, can have confidence for the day to come the coming judgment. So when we look at Romans chapter eight, verse one, we notice the word therefore in the beginning, Paul's building off of all that he has just said. So let's read Romans eight together. We'll start with the first eight verses. And as you listen, follow along with me if you have your Bible, but listen for the contrast that the apostle Paul is setting up here between two ways of life or two ways to live. He says, verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse eight, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And so far, Paul has four times now used the phrase, those who. If you remember your English grammar, that's the third person. He's talking about people out there, those who do this, those who walk this way. Now he's going to make a shift in verse 9 and start talking directly to the reader, directly to the church. And he's going to say, you, verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, Well, the body is dead because of sin. The spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12, so then brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. 
For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So the contrast that Paul is making in these verses is not first and foremost us versus them, the insiders versus the outsiders. Rather, he is speaking to the church, to those who've been redeemed, to those who are beloved of God, and he's contrasting us as we used to be versus us as we are now in Christ. And he's saying we have a different status than we used to have. We used to have the status of being condemned, verses one and two. Now we have the status of being free in Christ. We used to have, he's saying, a different leader. We were led along, we were directed by the flesh, the sinful flesh. But now, this is verses four through five, also verse nine, we're under the direction of a different leader. We're led by the Holy Spirit. That means we have a different mindset. Our mind is now set on the Spirit, whereas it used to be set on the flesh. And so there's a different outcome. Verse six, verses 10 through 11 say that the outcome of this former way of life was the pathway to death because of sin. But now we're on the pathway of life and peace and righteousness by the Spirit. And the whole thing is under the umbrella of a different attitude, different relationship with God. Verse seven says that this former way of life, we were hostile to God. But now, by his grace, we are pleasing to God. So then in verse 17, Paul's gonna introduce a new concept, a new category in this set of contrasts that he's been making. If you look in verse 17, he says, for all who are led by the spirit of God, which is what he's just been describing, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit, capital S, spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So Paul's saying here, those of you who are in this category of having been freed from condemnation, having life and peace and not death, being led by the spirit rather than being led by the flesh, having your mind set on the spirit rather than your mind set on the flesh, you are also sons of God. One of the things that our culture teaches, if it has any remnants of Christianity left in it would be to say that all people have God as father and all of us are brothers and sisters. Not talking about the church specifically, but everybody who's created is one of the hallmarks of a more liberal, progressive form of Christianity. It's called the universal fatherhood of God, the universal brotherhood of man, And it sounds like a wonderful teaching. It sounds like a way that we can all get along. It's a way that we all have some form of unity, and yet it's not found in the Bible. There was a point at which all creatures were sons of God. 
But that's when it was just Adam and Eve. Adam is the first person in the Bible called in the singular son of God. He was in a right relationship with God. He was in the family of God, but he irrationally and tragically forfeited that status of sonship to become a slave to sin. And all of us are represented by Adam. We're all in Adam. So as he fell, we fell. And so we inherited his sinful nature and we inherited his status so that we are born sinful. From conception, we are born sinners. We are born slaves to sin. So none of us are born as sons of God. We can only become sons of God because God the Father sent the original son, the son with a capital S, to become man, to live a righteous life that none of us could ever live, to die a death that we could never die, to absorb the wrath of God so that we would not have to, to be raised again from the dead, to be resurrected and then ascended to the Father's right hand so that if we're in him, if we unite ourselves to him, if we hitch our wagon to the Son, we too can become sons outside the family of God, adopted into the family of God. So John 1.12 is a great verse to show that we are not sons to begin with, but we only become sons. John 1.12 says, all who receive him, receive Jesus, who believe in his name, he, God, gave the right for us to become children of God. So the original son, the ultimate son, opens up the way for each of us, men and women, to become sons of God by his grace. And the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is therefore not ashamed to call us brother. So the creator of the universe, all things were created by him and through him. Our creator is now our older brother if we come to him in faith. Let's go back to the, the argument Paul's building here and make sure we get the language straight because Paul's gonna keep doing this contrast thing all through Romans 8. So look at verse 15 to see what he's going to set adoption in distinction or in contrast to. Verse 15, he says that the sons of God are different from those who are enslaved. To be a slave, in verse 15, is to be someone marked by what he calls the spirit of slavery. So what does that mean? What would it mean to have the spirit of slavery? Well, Paul tells us here, it means to be marked by fear. Not the sort of reverent fear that we are to have of the Lord, but a, a, a terrible, tearful fear. The sort of fear that you would have at your slave master because you have no family, you have no hope, you have no assurance, you have no freedom, you have no love. Your, the whole relationship is characterized by fear. So keep looking at verse 15. What's the opposite then of the spirit of slavery? Paul says it's the spirit, capital S now, of adoption as sons. And Paul says it's with this spirit 
the Holy Spirit and by the Spirit that we are enabled to call out Abba, Father. So all persons everywhere have God as creator, but by the Holy Spirit, we now for the first time are able to cry out, Abba, Father. You may know that the word Abba is an Aramaic term used in the first century. It's pretty rare for someone to call God the Father, Abba. It's a term of endearment. It's a term of affection that a child would call his dear father. But I think in our culture, there is the temptation to sentimentalize the term. For it to just be sort of a a cute, safe word that we use. And I think more than anyone else, Russell Moore has helped me see this in his wonderful book called Adopted for Life, which if you want to explore the doctrine of adoption more, that's a wonderful book. And if you're thinking about adopting children, it's a wonderful book as well. But let me read this quote to you and ask for your patience because it's a little bit long, but I think it'll be worth it. He says, the creepiest sound I've ever heard was nothing at all. My wife Mariah and I stood in the hallway of an orphanage somewhere in the former Soviet Union on the first of two trips required for our petition to adopt. Orphanage staff led us down a hallway to greet the two one-year-olds we hoped would become our sons. The horror wasn't the squalor and the stench, although we at times stifled the urge to vomit and weep. The horror was the quiet of it all. The place was more silent than a funeral home by night. I stopped and pulled on Mariah's elbow. Why is it so quiet? Places filled with babies. Both of us compared the stillness with the buzz and punctuated squeals that came from our church nursery back home. But here, if we listened carefully, we could hear babies rocking themselves back and forth, the crib slat gently bumping against the walls. These children did not cry because infants eventually learn to stop crying if no one ever responds to the calls for food, for comfort, for love. No one ever responded to these children, so they stopped. The silence continued as we entered the boy's room. Little Sergei, now Timothy, smiled at us, dancing up and down while holding the side of his crib. Little Maxim, now Benjamin, stood straight at attention, regal and czar-like, but neither boy made a sound. We read them books filled with words they couldn't understand about saying goodnight to the moon and cows jumping over the same. But there were no cries, no squeals, no groans. Every time we left at the appointed time in the same way that we had entered, in silence. On the last day of the trip, Mariah and I arrived at the moment we had dreaded since the minute we arrived, we received our adoption referral. We had to tell the boys goodbye as by law we had to return to the United States and wait for the legal paperwork to be completed before returning to pick them up for good. After hugging and kissing them, we walked out into the quiet hallway as Mariah shook with tears. And that's when we heard the scream. Little Maxim fell back in his crib and let out a guttural yell. It seemed he knew, maybe for the first time, that he would be heard. 
On some primal level, he knew he had a father and mother now. I will never forget how the hairs on my arm stood up as I heard the yell. I was struck maybe for the first time by the force of the Abba cry passages in the New Testament, ones I had memorized in vacation Bible school. And I was surprised how little I had gotten it until now. Up to that time, I had read the Abba cry passages the same way I heard them preached as a gurgle of familiarity, the spiritual equivalent of an infant cooing papa or daddy. Relational intimacy is surely present in the text, hence Paul's choice of such a personal word as Abba. But this definitely isn't sentimental. After all, Scripture tells us that Jesus' spirit lets our hearts cry, Abba, Father. Jesus cries, Abba, Father, as he screams with loud cries and tears for deliverance in the Garden of Gethsemane. Similarly, the doctrine of adoption shows us that we groan with the creation itself as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It is, Dr. Moore says, the scream of the crucified. But the question for us, and one of the questions that Romans 8 raises, is how do you know that God is your father, your Abba father? It's one thing for Dr. Moore and his wife to go in and to physically go back to that orphanage and to escort those boys by the hand, get them into a hotel, get them on a plane, bring them back, welcome them into their home. But what do you do when your father, who has adopted you, is invisible? How do you know that he is truly your father? And how do you know when there is someone else sinisterly whispering in your ear that everything you believe about that father is a lie? That you were a pretender that you may have prayed the prayer or signed a card or walked the aisle or you can cry great tears or sing loud songs, but deep down, you know that you are illegitimate, that you are not truly a child of God. He's not really your father and he certainly doesn't love someone like you, not when you keep sinning the same old sins in the same old way. Well, there is an answer. And the answer is in verse 16. We are told by Paul through the Spirit that the Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do not think of the Holy Spirit as some impersonal force like electricity. Don't call the Holy Spirit it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a powerful person. He's a speaking person. He's not speaking audibly to our spirits. You can't turn on a tape recorder in a room and capture his voice. But he speaks spirit, capital S, to spirit, lowercase s, to our spirit, to assure those who are adopted children of God that they do belong to him. You may never be able to prove it in a court of law, you may have people doubt that it's true, but the Spirit can testify to your spirit by God's grace, through faith alone, that you belong to the family of God. And not only are you in the family, 
But look at verse 17. It takes it one step further. You're not just a son, but you are an heir. So there's this whole progression. You used to be a slave, and then you went before the, the judge, and you got declared not only innocent, but also righteous. But think about it. At an earthly level, if you're declared righteous, that doesn't really mean that you have much of a relationship, personal relationship with the judge. But the judge, as it were, then goes and adopts you. And you come into his family. So you go from slave to innocent, not only innocent to righteous, not only righteous, but also to son. But just because you're a son doesn't mean that you are going to get an inheritance. Not every son in Israel got an inheritance from father. But look at the wording of verse 17. If we are children, then in God's family, we are all also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We will never be Christ. We will never be God. But in some ways, we're at the same level now as Christ. We are sons of God with our older brother, the son. We share in the inheritance of what 1 Corinthians 3 calls all things, all things belong to you. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, if you are in the family of God, by grace, through faith, all things belong to you. And this isn't just receiving things from God, but the highest gift is receiving God himself. So we are sons, but more than sons, we are heirs. I mentioned earlier that Paul's contrast so far has not been us versus them, but rather us as we used to be versus us as we now are. But now he's going to shift, and he's going to contrast in verses 18 through 25, us as we now are versus us as we someday will be. Look at how Paul sets up that contrast, verse 18, you'll be able to see it. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So this present time, when is this present time? This present time is the time between the two appearings of Christ. Between when he appeared and came back to life in AD 33 and when he will one day appear again to those who love his appearing. That's this present age. That is what the Bible calls the last days. If you wonder, are we in the last days? The answer is yes. We have been since AD 33. We will be until Christ returns. And Paul is saying, you can't compare this age with the age that is to come when Christ returns, stretching out for all of eternity. Because this age is marked by suffering. It's marked by pain. It's marked by futility. But that age is marked by glory. And in verses 19 through 22, Paul's going to talk about the relationship between the creation and ask, what does the creation think about that age to come? And Paul's going to use language of scholars that call it personification. It takes something that's not personal, like a rock, and give it personal attributes. So Paul's describing creation, and he says, verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. 
The creation at the fall, he says, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the world tells us that this world is good or this world is neutral. It just is what it is. But Paul is telling us, no, this world, this present age is fallen. It's marked by angst and pain and difficulty. And he chooses an interesting metaphor here to describe it. He chooses the metaphor of childbirth. He could have chosen just sickness or pain or hurt, but he specifically chose that picture of childbirth. And why is that? I think one of the reasons, at least, is when someone is pregnant, we say that they are expecting, right? What are they expecting? They're expecting glory to come. They're expecting an end point. They, they realize there, there is pain, there is difficulty, there is hardship, but it's all going to be worth it because of what, Lord willing, will result. So what is the creation expecting? What is it waiting for? What is it longing for? One scholar says, even if you look at the Greek words and the way in which they're combined, it's almost as if creation is on, on tippy-toe, expectantly waiting, peering to see what will be revealed. And what creation is longing and groaning for is, surprisingly enough, our adoption. Look at verses 19 through 20. Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son's of God. Verse 20, the creation hopes that it, will, it too will be set free. Free to do what? Free to have the glory of the children of God. And then Paul turns it in verses 23 through 25 to us and our own groaning, the, the angst and struggle of our own hearts as we live in this present fallen age. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope, he says, that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Now if you're reading carefully, if you're listening closely, I hope you'll be just a little bit bothered by something Paul's saying here. Maybe a little bit perplexed or confused. Because the question is, have you been adopted if you are a believer in Christ? I mean, Paul seems to have said that, right? Verse 14, all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God now. Uh, verse 15, you didn't receive that spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You are enabled by the spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. Verses 16 and 17, you are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. And yet now, Paul is saying that we are waiting for our adoption. So it sounds like we've already been adopted 
but we have not yet been adopted. So the key, anytime you're perplexed at something, is keep looking at the context. I know a guy named Greg Kokel who said, you, you should never, ever read a Bible verse. Read Bible passages, read Bible paragraphs, see the whole context. And we get clues in here from the context of what Paul is talking about. In what sense is our adoption incomplete? Well, in verse 23, he says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, I already read this, but listen carefully, we groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, comma, the redemption of our bodies. So we have been adopted, but our bodies have not yet been redeemed. So we can ask the question, have you, as a Christian, been resurrected yet? And the answer is yes, spiritually. That's why the Bible says that you are alive in Christ. It says you are seated now in the heavenly places. Your spirit is alive. It's been raised from the dead. But our bodies, even as our spirits being inwardly renewed, our bodies are decaying. They're wasting away. When one day each of us will die, our spirits will go into the presence of God himself. And in popular culture, sometimes even in church, we imagine that those who have gone before us are in heaven now with their new resurrection bodies. Sometimes you may hear at a funeral, oh, they're, they're able to finally run on fresh legs now, and that's not true. Their bodies are left behind. Their bodies are buried into the grave, dust to dust. So we await that great day when we will receive our resurrection body just as Christ waited a short amount of time and then received as the first fruits his resurrection body. So the first truth is that the, the part of our adoption that's incomplete is not God's acceptance, but the redemption of our physical bodies. And the second part of it is found in verses 18 through 19. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. And then he says in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So there is coming a day when your adoption will be publicly revealed for all to see. Right now, the Spirit testifies to your spirit. You really are a child of God. But the world doesn't know that. You can tell them. You can live a life that causes them to ask for the hope that is in you. But if by the miracle of God's regenerating grace, they come to believe, they too will be believing in an invisible God. They will be walking by faith and not by sight. So we really are adopted but it has not been publicly revealed. So when Christ returns to bring us home, we will receive our resurrection body and it will be publicly revealed for all to see, these are my children. These are ones who belong to me. Right now, we are living in the age of, of groaning. We are walking in the days of faith. This is the, the period of suffering. But there's coming a day, brothers and sisters, that will not be marked by faith, will not be marked by groaning. 
it will be marked by sight and by glory and by public vindication where the point is not for us to say, look at us and how great we are, but to say, there's my father. This is my father's world and he is great and he is glorious and he has done all things well. Paul ends the book of Romans with a series of questions. They're rhetorical questions. They're not the sort of questions where he's asking because he doesn't know the answer. It's precisely because he does know the answer that he wants to ask you. If you are in Christ, do you truly believe this? Let these questions interrogate your weak heart, your unbelief, your faltering faith. Let these questions puncture your own preoccupation with the present age and help them to fix your eyes on the one who holds the future and the one who rules all things. Let these questions orient your fearful and anxious heart and let them inform the groanings of your own spirit. Paul says, what shall we say to these things, the things that Ryan read for us? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. If God did that, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? What are people going to say to you? It's God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is even now at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Who's gonna separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He gives the answer, verses 37 through 39. No, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are in Christ, if you have come to him saying, I have nothing in my hand to bring except my sin, Will you accept me? He is happy to adopt you into his family, secure forevermore. You have been spiritually redeemed. You have been spiritually raised from the dead. You have been spiritually adopted. But for those who are in Christ, there is coming a day when Christ will return, when all that is wrong will be set right, when we will finally receive glorified resurrection bodies to live forevermore, beholding him face to face. May the Lord hasten that day. Let me pray. Father, it is a privilege to call you Father. Thank you that you have adopted us. 
Lord, I pray for each of us in this room, beginning with myself, that we would find nothing else in all this world that would so shape our mindset and our identity than recognizing that we can become, by your grace, your sons and your daughters. Help us to be faithful, Lord, as we go through this life as as pilgrims, as exiles, as those wandering through a strange land. Help us to root our identity in Christ. Help us to long for his appearing. And may our souls rise up and sing your praise forevermore. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.